Good morning to everyone. It's great to see this good number here this morning. We deeply appreciate your attendance. It looks like a really, really good attendance today. We appreciate that very much. And we have visitors with us. We want you to know you're welcome. We invite you to be with us any opportunity. We really appreciate having visitors with us. Uh, a couple of things pertaining to uh, trying to be as safe as we can against the virus that's showing up again. We're going to ask that the person on the end of the pew where the clipboard is to take the clipboard and write the people's name down that's on your pew so that we won't have to be passing it back and forth and that other people handle it. And, and another thing is do your best to sing from looking at the screen rather than handling the songbooks so we won't be different ones handling that as well. So I hope you understand that. Uh, I got a call yesterday afternoon from Stephen Hodgett. He was on his way to camp and he was some kind of excited. He said, uh, I want you to uh, thank the congregation for their response to our request for sweet things, you know, individual route for the kids at camp. As a matter of fact, he said the congregation really showed out with their response to this, and he was tremendous, the tremendous response as he put it. So he was very grateful for that, and they're excited about camp. He asked us to make sure we pray for uh, the people there at the camp for this week. He said from this congregation, about 30 people will be there, adults and uh, kids all together. So a exciting week for them. We pray, we'll pray for them too also. So, uh, but again, I want to say how much we appreciate you being here today. Great crowd. Look forward to worshiping together with this large group. Uh, let's pray, please. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the beautiful day you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble to worship you. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for all the people that have a priority to assemble to worship. We pray, Father, that from being here today, that we can grow spiritually, that we can learn to appreciate each other and love each other more. And Father, we pray that all things we do will bring honor and glory to your name. And we pray, Father, that as Ken brings a lesson to us today, that we be very attentive and can respond and grow from that. Pray for each one that's going to be participating this morning. Father, we, pray, we also pray for our people who are at camp. We pray for Stephen especially, since he is the director of the camp this week. We pray that he can carry out his plans in a successful way, that the students there, the kids there, kids that are attending can grow from being there. There are a lot of things to learn from being in camp, and we just pray that that will be successful. We pray for all the kids involved as well. We pray that all can stay well. We pray that they can stay free from the virus we pray that you just protect them all and keep them safe. Bring them back to us and safely. 
and they can say that they enjoyed the camp. And Father, now we pray that as we enter our worship service, we prepare our minds and our hearts that we participate. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First song this morning will be number 76. How great thou art, if you will, and able to please stand with me as we sing together. Oh, my
together this morning in prayer we are humbled so much by thy power and by thy mercy we are amazed at everything you do that brings us together and makes things happen in our lives and brings all those moments of joy for all these things come from thee Father, may we never, ever take these things and your power and your creation for granted. 
May we always live the right way. May we never ever forget that your son came to this earth to bring all these things together and save each and every one of us. Father, there are many ways that we can live our lives in this world, many choices that we have. But Father, we know there's only one way, and that is through Jesus. And we're so thankful. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'd like to mark your hymnal to number 904, Have You Been to Jesus, will be our song of invitation after Brother Ken's lesson. Next song before his lesson will be What the Lord Has Done in Me. What the Lord Has Done in Me. His uh, thoughts today are going to be on baptism. And this song goes through the, the acts and rising up from the water and uh, just explaining what, what God's done for us. Let's sing together. Let the verses 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? 
Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, and like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Good morning, everyone. Isn't it beautiful today? And isn't it great to be assembled together to worship God in spirit and in truth? I don't know what it's like for you during the week, but I just, I cannot wait for the first day of the week to come, to get through that weekend and to be here participating together in these acts of worship. It is so uplifting and well, I get a good charge for the beginning of the week that is ahead. I pray that today will be just that for you, a time to recharge, to be filled up, to celebrate our relationship with the Lord, and then really to prepare ourselves for what we face in the coming week, should the Lord grant that to us. Gay Rowland called me this morning. She said that her mother had fallen earlier. She broke her hip. She's in a coma. Uh, the doctors are not expecting her to come out of that coma. They're treating her the best that they can, but the family, they basically braced themselves for the very worst. But Gay was very resolute in her faith and trusting God. And is that a comfort that we can enjoy as children of God? Yes, Ken, it is. If it were not for that, I don't know how we would survive, do you? I trust God for everything. So we're going to pray for her mother and for their family. And then we will begin our study of God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege and opportunity that we have secured. We've taken advantage of this morning to assemble here and worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we are enlivened, we are energized as a result of that relationship that we enjoy with you, being able to approach you as a family. I pray we will never take any of this for granted. Father, I thank you for what the assembly means for each of us and for the closeness that we enjoy and the dependence that we have on one another and the way our lives intersect. So when one is suffering, we all suffer together. We rejoice like today. We see one niece here who's been away for so long and we're just thankful she's recovered that she could be here. We think of Joanne Roberts who's facing surgery tomorrow and we're praying success for her. So many others that are here that have been through surgeries or enduring illness, and we're concerned about each one of them. Today, Father, our mind goes to Gay Rowland's family, and especially the condition of her mother. And Father, we're just praying that everything that the medical community can do, that that will be done, just to take action if that's possible to resolve her situation. And if that's the case, we just rejoice in that. But Father, as it stands now, there, there just seems to be very little that can be done. And 
So again, we throw all our concerns, our hopes and wants at your feet, and we trust you for everything, whether that's the resolution of her health or otherwise. But Father, we also have confidence in you that even if things do not go as we hope, we still know that in your hands all will be well. So we pray for Gay and her family, everyone who's affected by this injury. We pray for their comfort and strength. And thank you, Father, for what makes us different from the whole world. And that is the hope that we have. It's not vested in this life. It's looking for something greater. And it is to that that we set our minds continually and long for a better place. Thank you for the promise of that. Lord, I pray that you'll bless me today as a communicator that I can express your simple word in simple ways, easy to understand and to take into one's heart. And I pray as regards worship for those who are here today, that they can meditate on your word, they can take it into themselves, and that it will strengthen and fortify their souls. And I pray, Father, that if your word falls on a soul that is in need of healing, that that will take place today or a soul that is outside of fellowship with you, Father, I pray that your message will touch them such that they will enjoy the hope and the promise of eternal life today. Thank you for all that you'll accomplish in all of us through this avenue of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you are in a Church of Christ building and... I don't know. I think that maybe we have a stigma associated with us in that we just talk so much about baptism. It seems like we just wear that subject out. And so in the interest of wearing out that subject, I thought we would talk about baptism today. <laughs> I want to share with you what I believe you absolutely should know about baptism. Now, you say, kid, listen, we do talk about it a lot, and it seems like every sermon, somehow or other, you have that matter nestled in the discussion, and you just, you go everywhere and eventually end up there, and, you know, why, why do we dwell so much on a subject like that? I, I would say that if more people understood baptism and the essential nature of it, then, then we wouldn't need to talk about it anymore. We'd all be on par, but I'm just telling you what. I've been on lots of Bible studies where I agreed, the subject, the person with me, agreed on a great many matters. But when it came to the subject of baptism, of all things, many times there was... If not outright disagreement, there were certainly deep discussions about it. Here's my feeling about the essential nature of baptism, right off the top. Here's something I know about God, and the more I study matters of God, the more I am convinced that this is true. When God commands you to do something... He's not playing around with you. He does not give non-essential commands. Now, I tried to 
rake through as much as I could regarding the scriptures, seeing if I could isolate a time when God commanded somebody to do something with much urgency, but in the background, he was, you know, kind of kidding around, or it wasn't that important to him. I can think of no example of any such thing happening. God, listen, God does not play around with the things that he shares with us. And when it comes to his commandments, the things that are of an essential, important nature, God emphasizes those things and is in absolute expectation that we will comply. Now, you don't have to comply unless it is that you want to be assured of the blessings that God promises associated with those commands. And typically, God's economy goes this way. You obey and you're faithful, you will be blessed. You disobey and you are unfaithful, you will not be blessed. In fact, there's another word for it. It's cursed. In matters of salvation, God, God doesn't mince words. He doesn't make it difficult. And hence the emphasis in the prayer a moment ago. We're talking about a matter that otherwise ought to be just about as simple a matter as could possibly be. There ought not be any confusion or disagreement regarding the matter of baptism. But the reality is there's quite a bit of misunderstanding. So I'm going to do my very best to help us to identify exactly what the Bible is talking about when it talks about baptism. I want us to understand the act of baptism itself. I want us to appreciate who is subject to baptism, who is eligible for it. And then I want us to see what the benefits of baptism are. Okay, let's go about identifying baptism. You might say, Ken, I don't necessarily need to identify it. All I have to do is open up my New Testament scriptures and right there it is. I see baptism mentioned a lot. Well, you probably do, but if you are a careful reader of the scriptures and you are of a mind to begin to catalog things or to put them in their various categories, you may have noticed already that there are about seven different kinds of baptism that are described in the New Testament scriptures. And yet, we often go to the passage, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5, in the midst of several declarations of ones, we find in that passage that there is one baptism. Now, keep in mind that the context of, of this passage is dealing with the oneness that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, in particular in the church, and the benefits that come as a result of that oneness. And then he just lists several things upon which there is only one, and we are to direct ourselves. So in the midst of all of that, he talks about one baptism. And we might scratch our head a little bit and wonder, now wait a minute, if baptism is mentioned in several different ways in the scriptures, seven at least, then how is it that he comes down to one? And I want to begin by just setting aside any notion that there are really seven different ways we could be baptized. There isn't. There's only one. Only one that contributes to the unity and the oneness that is described in Ephesians chapter 4. So what are these baptisms then, Ken, that the Bible speaks of? Well, one of those was the baptism of John the Baptist. 
Now, you don't have to go very far in the ministry of John before you see that he is actually going out. He's preaching the gospel of the good news, the coming kingdom. He's pointing everyone to Jesus Christ. And he touts this baptism of repentance. Well, when Jesus has died and now is resurrected and the church is established, the Apostle Paul is going on missionary tours. He ends up in the city of Ephesus. And while he is in Ephesus, he runs into some of these guys, 12 in fact, who were disciples of John, who had been baptized with this baptism of repentance. And Paul starts questioning about that. Come to find out, yeah, they'd been baptized into John's baptism, but they hadn't heard anything about the Holy Spirit. They hadn't heard anything about being baptized into Jesus Christ. And so straight away, verse 5 indicates that those who had been baptized into John were now being baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Clearly, that isn't the one baptism of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, given the fact that it became outmoded. So we continue searching. And again, we see another baptism mentioned. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 2, there is referred to a baptism of Moses. Well, some people would get excited about that. You know, Moses, the great lawgiver. Okay, right there's a significant baptism, but it doesn't take very long. You don't have to go any farther than that verse right there to find out that that baptism was for a particular time and a particular group of people, the Israelites. And it's really a metaphor to connect us to the saving message of the gospel in that those people in that time as a figure were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, the Red Sea. Well, unless you had been back there with Moses, that one doesn't pertain to you. So again, that isn't the one baptism of Ephesians 4 verse 5. Some people get excited when they hear discussions of the Holy Spirit. And since we talked about John's baptism and the conversion that took place in Acts chapter 19, we might begin to look for some connection between the Holy Spirit and baptism. And right there in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, we find out that Jesus was going to be the purveyor of that kind of baptism. But again, you don't have to go very far to realize that Jesus himself was to be the administrator of that baptism. So again, while that was for a particular time and a particular set of people, that isn't that universal one baptism of Ephesians 4, 5. In connection with that, we also see that there is depicted a baptism of fire, kind of set in contrast with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some people I hear today talk about the baptism of fire. They get all excited about how that is transformative, blah, blah, blah. If you read the context of Matthew chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, the baptism of fire that's talked about in that text is not something you want to be engaged in. That is the kind of fire that burns you up for eternity. In fact, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, it is an eternal consequence of your sin and unfaithfulness to God. Thank you, but no thank you. That definitely is not the universal one baptism of Ephesians 4 verse 5. 
There's also that baptism of suffering, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 23. That's in a conversation that Jesus has with the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And those guys, they wanted to have special privileges in the kingdom of God to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. Wow, who would want that? But Jesus is like, seriously, are you going to be baptized with a baptism that I'm baptized with? Are you willing to go through what I'm willing to go through? I take it the idea of incredible suffering. Now, would James and John suffer? I don't deny that they would. But again, not everybody fits within the realm of the description that's given as regards to the extent of that kind of suffering for baptism. Not really the universal one for all, the one that joins us all together kind of baptism. There's an unusual baptism that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29. It's the baptism for the dead. Now, in that context, if, if you've read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know it's all about the resurrection. And the whole subject matter is, if I die and I'm in Christ, what happens to me? You know, well... Some people were teaching that there was no resurrection of the dead. So if I'm baptized for death, in other words, I die to be resurrected, but there's no resurrection, then what good is that baptism? Actually, he's not talking about baptism. He's just talking about the, the idea of baptism and the significance or the result of it. Baptism for the dead, that, that would have nothing to do with the oneness that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. However, there is one, the very one that Ephesians 4 and verse 5 is speaking to. The very baptism that Jesus Christ commanded, he authorized as he was ascending to the Father in Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 18. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, there are a few things that you can notice out of this text that apply to every person after the day of Pentecost until the coming of the Lord. Every single one of us can be baptized and joined together on the basis of this baptism. It was a baptism that was administered by men. It was a baptism that was administered and going to be administered from the time of its inception until the end of the age. And then he dots it with a period and adds, Amen, so be it, that is it. That's the message. Go and baptize these people. And action that can be enjoyed and experienced by every human being who has lived past the day of Pentecost. One that fits every culture and circumstance, no matter the language, the place, the region that you live. That baptism commissioned by Jesus Christ is the one, the one we identify in Scripture as the one of Ephesians 4 verse 5. Okay, so... I can identify what it is. I, I see lots of examples in the scriptures about it, but talk to me a little bit about the act of baptism. Exactly what's performed, what's going on, the action when a baptism takes place. Here's something that a lot of people don't realize, and that is 
that the word baptism itself is just a verb that's describing some action. Usually when I speak of baptism, I already have in my mind the idea of baptism in water. But what we don't usually realize is that the word specifically baptism doesn't really have anything to do with water or any other element into which one would be baptized. In fact, the word baptize is broken down several different ways in, in your text. If you're looking it up, you can look up baptism, baptized, baptized, baptizing. All of those you can see in the word itself comes from a specific Greek root. And in fact, when, when the English was being translated, there was so much fear regarding the definition of baptism that they didn't even define it like they usually do with English words. They just created a new word, baptize. Comes out of the Greek word baptizo. Now that word literally means to dip, to plunge, to immerse, or to submerge. You say, well, where's the water in that? There is no water in that. It's an action. It's just telling you that whatever it is that you're doing in whatever element you are using, you make sure that they are completely immersed in it. Now, we wouldn't know what to baptize in unless the context tells us exactly what to do. For instance, if I said, go out there and run. Okay, I can run, but... Do I run on the asphalt? Do I run on the dirt? Do I run on a track? Do I run on concrete? Where do I run? I understand the action, but tell me the element. Same thing with baptism. Baptism, dip, plunge, immerse, submerge. But in what? Grape juice? Milk? No, we look to the text. For instance, uh, an example of that, we talked about John's baptism. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 says... John speaking of himself, I baptize with water. Okay, there's baptism taking place. Somebody's being immersed. Question, where are they being immersed? I find out right there in that text, in, in the water. So they're being immersed, submerged, plunged, dipped in water. Got it. All scholars agree. I haven't read one that disagreed that that's actually what baptism is. A dip, plunge, submerge, immerse. But you know what, you don't, have to, you don't have to be a scholar of the scriptures to know that that's true. All you need to do is be a reader of the scriptures. I was talking about what happened with, with John, talking about his baptism, and then in that context, Jesus was being baptized. You know that uh, Jesus, in his baptism, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says that he immediately came up out of the, guess what, water. When he was baptized, he was baptized in water, immersed, dipped, plunged, submerged, and then he came up out of the water immediately. That was Jesus. I know that's the same thing that happened to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 and verse 28. The Bible says that both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Then in the next verse, he came up out of the water. So there was a dipping, a plunging, a submerging, an immersion that took place. And then they came back up out of it. I know that it is something, well, it makes sense, like in the case of John, that required a lot of water. In John chapter 3, verse 23, they went to Anon to baptize because there was much water there. Why do you need much water? 
Well, if you're going to dip, plunge, submerge, immerse a body in water, you're going to need a lot of it. I know that this is equated to a washing in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, speaking to the person who would later be known as the Apostle Paul. Ananias says, now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It's also likened to a death, burial, and resurrection. That was the text that we read a moment ago from Romans chapter 6. At verse 4, it says, Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So here we go, a death, burial, and resurrection. Question, when you bury somebody or something dies... What do you do with it? Just throw it out on the ground and pitch a little dirt on it? Maybe sprinkle a little bit or maybe take a shovel and just, you know, put a pour a little on there. That is not what you do. When something dies, you dig a hole. You dig it about as deep as you can. You put it in the hole and then you cover it back up. You know what you've just done using our words? You have baptized that dead, if it's one of your critters or one of your loved ones. You have buried them in the ground and you have covered them up. You have immersed them, dipped them, plunged them, submerged them in that dirt. In our case, it's not dirt, but it is water into which we are immersed. And when we are immersed, we're buried in that water. We die with Jesus Christ. When we rise up out of that water, we are as though resurrected out of the grave to new life. Isn't that a beautiful act? That is the act, that's the act of baptism. And then there's the subject. I would ask the question, okay, I, I, I see what baptism is, and I understand the act of it, just kind of the action of what's happening and the burial and all that, but who exactly can be baptized? Now, here's what I want to say. I want to say everybody, everybody can be baptized. That, that, is, not, that is not nearly true. Everybody has the opportunity, but not everybody is eligible or qualified for baptism. You see, there are some prerequisites to being baptized. One of those is the ability to understand and obey the gospel. I go back to the passage that we noted from Matthew 28. In verse 19, Jesus tells his apostles to go into all the world. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Okay, if a person can't receive the knowledge, can't receive the message and understand it, makes sense, heads or tails of what's going on, then they can't properly respond in submission of obedience to a death, burial, and resurrection. If I don't grasp what is happening there or what's taking place, I have no understanding of the gospel. Therefore, if you immersed me in water, you would just be getting me wet. I had a prospect one time that I used to work out with. We were training for triathlons and we had a swimming portion. And I always thought, how easy would this be? I'll just get him in this pool, and when he's not looking, I'll immerse him in the water. Hallelujah, save the soul. No, that doesn't work. You can't just go grab people and start dumping them in the water. 
That has nothing to do with our salvation. A person has to understand the gospel and then respond to it in their own obedience, not by contrition, not forcibly. So I know I have to understand it. I have to be a person who, in understanding that message, is ready to act, kind of like the Corinthians were in Acts chapter 18 and verse 8. The Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now watch that progression. They heard it. That means when I heard it, I understood it. So they heard it, they understood it, then they believed in it, and then they obeyed the command to be baptized. You see, there is a progression. I have to understand what's going on before I'm ever immersed in that water. I don't start with the end result. I can't get to the end result until I meet some prerequisites. There's another prerequisite, and I would say, at least in my experience, the one that gets in the way all the time. And that is the one that they mentioned in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. To repent and be baptized. Don't skip repentance, because repentance is oftentimes the most difficult thing to do. Repentance flies in the face of the will of a person. I have to change in order to repent. I have to turn away from my sin in order to repent. I can't say, well, you know, I, I'm going to be a better person as a result of this baptism. No, no. You may be a better person as a result of Christ in your life, but baptism is not going to make you a better person. Baptism is going to be the result of an action based on my obedience and having contemplated the changes that I need to make. I've got to change my life. I got to quit this track that I'm on and turn to Jesus. Am I going to be perfect? No, I am not. But I'm also not going to be a person who deliberately walks in sin. So if I'm in sin and I've identified that sin, I've got to repent of that sin before I can ever be baptized and have my sins washed away. That doesn't even make sense. And then that whole idea of, okay, so yeah, I believe can I believe and then be baptized? Well, that depends what you believe. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says that with the mouth one believes unto righteousness, and with, uh, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Well, what is it that I'm to confess? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Stop right there. Many people believe in Jesus as something. They might say he was a great teacher. I know it was a historical figure. Maybe he was even a prophet. Remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They came up with all those answers. But Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter, and I'm assuming the others join in, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, great. Do you believe, not just that he was great, or he's an outstanding figure of history, but do you truly believe that he is the Son of God? And our text here from Romans 10 added that we believe that God raised him from the dead, because that's the whole matter of the gospel, isn't it? Not just the life of Jesus, but the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Do you believe that? Or do you just think it's some kind of fairy tale? Some kind of story that they invented in the first century. I'm telling you what, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God raised Him from the dead, then there's really no reason for you to be baptized because you don't really believe unless you believe those basic tenets 
of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the whole key to everything. And then not only that, believing it and understanding it and coming to grips with the change that has to be made, then I have to actually be immersed in the water. Not dipped, not poured, but totally and completely immersed uh, in that water. Not sprinkled or poured. Uh, immersed, completed in that water. So I think about the description that's given in Acts chapter 8, beginning back at about verse 36. They've been talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As you can imagine, the subject of baptism comes up because that is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's brought to bear in our baptism, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. So when they came to an appropriate place, that Ethiopian eunuch, he's looking ahead. He says, wait a minute. See, here's water. What hinders me? What keeps me from being baptized? And he said, if you believe, with all your heart you may. And he said, he made that good confession we just talked about a moment ago. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So they commanded the chariot to stand still. And Philip and the eunuch, they both went down into the water and he baptized him. Do you see what happened there? All of those prerequisites, all of that understanding coming to bear his condition of sin, repenting of that, now confessing the truth that he believes about Jesus and being baptized. That's how it goes. But not everybody's capable of doing that. For instance, children are not able to do that. I go and I sit with my newborn grandchildren. You wondered how I'd get that in there. I go and sit with them, I talk to them, they jabber back at me. I pretend like they understand me, but they don't. I ask them, how's the day going? Oh, good, how beautiful. They don't understand. I could teach them how to, would you want your newborn baby driving the car? Take you home to death. You say, well, wait till they're such. We don't even let them get a driver's license till they're 16 years of age. We don't let them get married until a little after that. And yet we want to, I, I hear about churches baptizing little babies when they're only a few days old. What? Can they meet the requirements that we saw the scriptures bring to bear? The answer is no. They're not eligible for that baptism. Neither is a person who might be mentally impaired to the extent that they don't understand what is going on with the baptism. Oh, it might be, you know, it just warms our heart to see somebody baptized, and indeed it should. But let's don't play games with baptism. It's not just a formality or some kind of ceremony that we go through. It is the act, the culmination of our faith and obedience, at which point our sins are washed away. We don't play with that at all. So, uh, who can be baptized the person who is responsible enough has the intellect by which to understand and obey the gospel. That's pretty simple. And then I, I want us to think a little bit in terms of what's the end result. What's, what's the benefit of my being baptized? Well, for one thing, when you are baptized, you become a son of God. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither slave, male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
we find out back in verse 16 that the promise was vested in two, Abraham and Christ. If I'm in Christ, I become part of the promise realized in Christ, now in us as we are in Him. I can become a son or a daughter of God through baptism, according to this text. Also in this text, verse 27, we find out that we enter into Christ. And that's pretty significant, don't you think? Because Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Wait, how did I get forgiveness of sins? By being in Christ. How did I get in Christ? Through baptism. What qualified me for baptism? Well, I heard the word. I obeyed it. I believed it. I confessed. I repented of my sins. And then I was immersed in water. Wait, that resulted in my salvation? So if I'm in Christ and I'm saved, what else is to come? Well, we also find out that when that message was preached the first time, Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the text says that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Who was being saved? Those people who obeyed the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says that baptism now saves us. It's not the removal of the filth of the flesh. It's not just getting washed but it's the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Oh, I love it. So when I'm buried in that water, it's not washing the body, but it is a semblance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, and I trust that God is true to me when he says, if you'll do this, I'll save you. Oh, really? Okay, so I'll do it. I'll believe that Jesus died and that he rose again. I'll repent of my sins. I will submit to this baptism. Oh, in water. And when I'm buried, I die with Jesus Christ. When I come up, I'm a new creature. Lord, I trust you that what you said is true. That is the answer of a good conscience toward God. And you know what God repays me with? Salvation. I am saved. And this text from Acts 2.47 said that the Lord then adds us to the church. That is so beautiful. It is a washing away of our sins. We saw that in Acts 22 and verse 16, didn't we? Ananias told Saul of Tarsus to rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says that Christ shed his blood to wash away our sins. It is that blood that we contact in that baptism, which is a semblance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that blood washes our sins away. Somebody says, baptism, that's not essential to your salvation. I say, what? Are you kidding? Are you pulling my leg? Where have you been? Where is your Bible? Not essential. Baptism is absolutely essential. If it were not essential, God would not have commanded it. And if God has commanded you, now let's think of who, who we might be talking to today. Who has God commanded? Let's just say, for instance, that you are a person who's never been baptized, but you, you come in here and you hear these sermons about Jesus. And in fact, you do believe that he's the son of God and you do believe that God raised him from the dead. You believe that. And you're here because you want to hear, you know, lessons about how to live your life because you have the great intention of walking with Jesus. 
So you're, you're living already a repentant sort of life and a confessing sort of life. Since then, you're living according to those dictates and you do believe that he's the son of God. And so, you know, the only thing is having repented, turned your life and gotten all these other things, you, you just never thought baptism was important. It's not just important. It's essential. And the only thing that stands between you right now, where you are, with all those other conditions met, and your salvation, is how many feet it is from where you sit to right here to acknowledge the need to be baptized, to have your sins washed away. Sins washed away? Yeah. You go a little bit further in Romans chapter 6, verse 7. It says that it is in death when you died that your sins are taken away. It's not in faith. Faith is just a prerequisite. It isn't in your repentance or your confession. It is in that act of baptism that your sins are washed away. You need to do that today to be saved. You better step out. If there's a child of God here today who's forsaken it in some way, needs to be restored to fellowship the Lord. We'll pray about that too. Anybody need to respond today for any reason? The water's ready. Why don't you come if you need to while we stand together and sing? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you
how deep the Father's love as we think about what Christ went through as he gave his body and spilt his blood for us and we partake of this, this supper here shortly. Let's sing together. How deep the Father's love. Like how deep the Father's love
Anyone that doesn't have their communion, if you would, raise your hand and someone will provide it for you in the middle. If you would bow with me while we offer thanks for the bread. Our Heavenly Father, we're so very thankful to you for allowing your Son to come to this earth to die on Calvary's cross to shed his blood that we might have remission of our sin. As we partake of this bread, we pray that we might do so in a way that was, will be pleasing in your sight. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. again. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this, the fruit of the vine, which represents Christ's blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. Help us to realize without the shedding of his blood, we could not have remission of sin. So help us to appreciate the sacrifice that he made there. And we pray, Father, that as we direct our minds back to that incident that, and take of this fruit of the vine, <clears throat> that you would be pleased with what we do. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes the Lord's Supper. We are also commanded to lay by and store on the first day of the week. You have several different ways that you can do that. I think on the screen up there it tells you some of those. And in addition to that, there's places that you can drop your contribution off at the exits. So if you'll bow with me now, we'll offer thanks for all the blessings the Lord has given us. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to live in a country where we're so richly blessed. We know, Father, with great blessings come great responsibilities, and we pray that we would do what we can to support the work of the church that we, we, we would do what we can to see that the world, the gospel is carried to the world. Help us to give of those things that have been given to us and help us to do so as we've prospered, as we've purposed in our heart, and help us to do so cheerfully. These things we ask in Christ's name, amen. Good morning. I'd like to join with Brother Morgan in welcoming each and every one of you to our Monday morning, Sunday morning services. <laughs> uh, our next scheduled service will be at 5 p.m. It's our wish that each and every one of you, especially our visitors, can attend again with us. I have several announcements this morning, if you would please, uh, your order of worship bulletin. Several on the sick list in there. Let's be sure we keep those in our prayers. Also, this coming Thursday, July the 29th, we will be providing lunch to the BHS band. If you can help in any way with this, come by the Annex at 10 a.m. See Andrea Barrett for details. 
Salt Team 4, the watermelon cutting uh, has been postponed till August. The watermelons are not ready yet, so we'll, we'll redo that when they get ready. We will have a bus leaving the Annex at 6 p.m. Monday going to Liberty. Uh, and if you wish to ride that, please be at the Annex by 6. Our Golden Circle breakfast will be in the morning. We'll be leaving the Annex at 8.15 a.m. If you would like to go, please be on hand before 8.15 p.m. And the place we're going is going to be a surprise doll. Wally Dean will be with us on Wednesday night, August the 4th, for a time of worship and song. All classes will meet in the auditorium. And if you have a song request, please make sure you have that to Jimmy before this coming Wednesday. And in connection to that, celebrating song will be August the 13th. Uh, there will be a church blessed leaving. Please sign in the foyer if you're interested. There will be a bus leaving this evening going to Singing in the Park. It will leave at 6.30. Uh, if you wish to go on that, please, please be on hand before 6.30. Uh, in conjunction to that, uh, anybody wanting to go to the camp to ride the bus, nobody has signed up for that. So if you're planning on riding the bus over, please see me after services or I will not be here to drive the bus. <clears throat> I do have a card. It says special thanks to you. Kind hearts are the gardens. Kind thoughts are the roots. Kind words are the flowers. Kind deeds are the fruits. Thinking of you all and giving thanks for the wonderful person you are. Dear church family, thanking you all so very much for all you have done. We're extremely grateful and thankful for everyone. God bless all in Christian love, the Rosas family. That's all the announcements I have this morning. If you would, please stand, and I'll dismiss us in prayer. <clears throat> I did miss one. Brother Morgan was supposed to remind me. Everyone is invited to a retirement reception in the Annex in honor of Jim Estes, Sunday, August the 1st, 3 to 4.30. If you would, please bow with me. Our Father in Heaven, as we approach your throne this morning, Father, we pray a prayer of thanks for the ability to attend and worship you without the chance of any harm becoming us. Father, we pray a special prayer for all those, Father, who did not have that liberty this morning, who met and worshiped you in, in fear of their life. Father, we ask you that you will be with all those who have been mentioned as sick, those who are hurting, be especially with their caregivers, that they may be able to be made well and return back to worship with us again soon. Father, we pray for all those who have lost loved ones. We pray that you will comfort them as only you can. Father, we ask you that you be with all of our campers and everyone that's traveling, that they may have a safe trip and that uh, your name may be glorified. Father, we ask you that you go with us, keep us near thee. In Christ's name, amen.